If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Please dig deep for Spite this Christmas. Our free and fearless journalism is funded by you, our loyal readers. So if you support what we do and you have a bit of money to spare, please do consider making a donation today. Anything you can give is greatly appreciated and will help us keep up the fight for freedom and democracy into 2022. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash donate. That's spiked-online.com slash donate to make your contribution. Thanks so much and have a very Merry Christmas. Hello and welcome to the final Spiked podcast of the year. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week to look back on 2021, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, we'll be looking at some of the key themes of the past year, free speech, the culture wars, the environment and the COVID pandemic. So... 2021 kicked off with probably the most infamous act of big tech censorship of all time. Donald Trump, who was sitting president, lest we forget, at the time in January, was booted off Twitter and Facebook and a number of other social media outlets. I mean, Tom, this was this really, you know, set a very, very dangerous precedent in terms of free speech, didn't it? It, it did. And, you know, we're almost at risk of forgetting it now. It feels like a million years ago yeah. how fast things move these days and how slow at the same time with the pandemic. But it was so significant. Um, and as you were saying, just in the, w- in the wake of the election, which obviously kind of descended into this crazy spectacle with Trump and his various outriders claiming that the election was stolen and it culminating in that demonstration and the storming of the Capitol and Trump effectively being kicked off of all of these different social media platforms for being seen to kind of incite riot, incite violence and all the rest of it. And I think the first thing to say about it, because it's easy to forget, is that just the case that they had for doing this was just completely bonkers. As you say, he was kicked off of Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, every single platform imaginable, essentially. And if you look to their justifications for doing this, it was so transparent that they were in effect looking for reasons to do so. So you had Twitter, which was suggesting that two tweets in particular were what damned him, one of which was referring to the, I think, 75 million people who voted for him as great American patriots. And they said that was him praising the rioters, Mm. which is tenuous and obviously. And then this other tweet, which was about him talking about he, how he wouldn't go to the inauguration, which they said was him signaling that the inauguration was fair game to attack. Yeah. So really quite ridiculous on its own terms, but the, br- we almost have to get outside of think of the kind of particulars of the argument because the broader significance of big tech saying and feeling emboldened to and being egged on to intervene in democratic politics in that way was so significant. And the fact that we've almost kind of forgot it now, I think is is quite alarming. And you remember at the time, the kind of shockwaves that sent around the world, various different world leaders, various different dissidents, even mm. in Russia and elsewhere saying what an alarming precedent this had set. But we certainly don't seem to have kind of learned any of the lessons from that, given the fact that that's just kind of happened. He had his little review, nothing really happened with that. And the full significance of it doesn't seem to have been reckoned with so far. Definitely not from my perspective, at least. It feels almost like after this um, this event that it's almost normal now. It's become almost accepted that big tech will censor 
on the grounds of misinformation, on the grounds of hate speech. That's really worrying, isn't it? It's very worrying. And I think Tom's right in that you had, it's almost like Trump gave everyone the excuse they needed to make big tech censorship normal because for so long we've had whether it be about kind of you know alex jones types in america or um nick griffin or you know tommy robinson or whoever it is over here we've you've had sort of figures that have been that people have discussed that these are the kind of hate figures that we need to censor and this is why you need to censor it and then twitter kind of kind of like just jumps the gun and does it and then Mm. um, youtube and all these places and without you know, there is an underlying kind of desire to do this, particularly among elites, but there's no sort of mass movement to censor Trump and then they do it. And it's kind of like, okay, it's done now and now it's normal. And you, in discussions, particularly in uh, the UK in Parliament now, it is very, very rare that you hear anyone talking about free speech before you had some kind of half-faux kind of libertarians, particularly among the Tory party, talking about the need for free and open debate. But pretty much now it you've had, you know, the, the issue with the far right issues about young people's access to self-harm images. You've got all these very emotional things combining to make it so that if you argue for uh, a freedom of speech online, you're basically arguing for heinous hatred to proliferate and that has always been the case but it's the extent to which everyone who was previously a freedom fighter or at least pretending to be a freedom fighter has taken a back seat now is is significant and i think also the pandemic has had an effect on it which is that in a tense time in which you know misinformation or the spreading whether it comes from eu leaders as we've said or mad people online does have a can have a knock-on effect in times of an emergency there's then also another excuse for people to say well we have to clamp down online because look there's a public health emergency going on and so fighting for freedom of speech online has become even more difficult and we've with those of us who do it have become even more isolated so one of the key words that i mean that ellis just mentioned is misinformation mm. i mean isn't that inherently political i mean if we think about donald trump for instance obviously we all agree that what he was saying about the stolen election was nonsense but Hillary Clinton believes that her 2016 election was, was yeah. stolen. So mm. is there not a kind of partisan or at least political bent to this? Oh, of course there is. I mean, misinformation has become an entirely politically loaded term, as you can tell, because the only types that people really dwell on are the ones that you can associate with a figure like Trump, um, with kind of right-wing populist figures, or just figures that the establishment doesn't really like. I mean, if you think about, say, the storming of the Capitol is a good example. There was so much misinformation swarming around about what happened on that day. The New York Times itself had spread this completely uncorroborated report that this police officer who died in the over the course of the days after the event had been basically bludgeoned to death with a um, fire extinguisher. Yeah. Complete nonsense completely untrue. Uh, it turned out he died of natural causes. You know, some you could see how maybe the kind of stress of that day might have contributed to to his untimely death. But nevertheless, it, the fact remains that most of the people who died in the storming of the Capitol were Trump supporters. And the only person who was kind of specifically killed, as it were, was a Trump supporter who was shot by police. And so at the, at the same time, you wouldn't necessarily know that from the narrative. There are all kinds of things swarming around, which Glenn Greenwald and others have corrected the record over in terms of all of these various different Trumps as being armed and in the capital, all of these things started to melt mm. away. And if you think about COVID as well, because I can't think of that many examples from this year, but certainly last year and all of the kind of COVID misinformation that was being curbed by the social media companies. Or the lab leak. I mean, the lab yeah. leak theory is a perfect yeah. example of that. And of course, it was was this year, of course, where you saw this about turn from Biden and the yeah. health authorities over whether or not this was legitimate. Um, you know, you see these double standards playing around constantly. And I always think it's fascinating that, you know, the BBC has that misinformation reporter. Yeah. There's all, all of these kinds of things just never really get 
discussed. <laughs> you know, it's only unidirectional. I think whilst uh, misinformation is one of those kind of terms that people say they kind of know it when they see it, but nevertheless, it's become incredibly slippery, mm. incredibly loaded. And I think we need to be very sceptical, <laughs> to say the least, when you see people try and label things misinformation, let alone try and censor them because they've labelled them as such, you know. Absolutely. Let's talk about a bit about the state of free speech on campus. I mean, university campuses, at least in Britain, have been shut for most of the year. And nevertheless, they have managed to um, hit the headlines for all the wrong reasons. I mean, particularly the, the, the emblematic case this year has been of uh, Kathleen Stock. There are very few people in the country who now don't know this uh, academic's name. You know, professor of philosophy, gender critical femi- feminist has become a household name because of the kind of campaign of vilification against her, essentially. Um, she resigned in October. Um, but what do you think her case tells us about the kind of free speech wars? Well, I think it was a perfect example of something that's been happening for years now. I mean, when we did the Free Speech University rankings at Spikes, which, you know, years ago, we were signaling out not just individuals who were being silenced on campus, you know, whether it's people like Dapper Laughs or indeed gender critical feminists at that time, like Julie Bindle, that was happening around 2015, that there was always this trend towards um, banning people from coming to speak or no platforming people. But there hasn't really been this kind of internal, mm. an example of an internal witch hunt, which it kind of, it, it did resemble, in which, yes, you always have students doing what students do and putting up posters and, you know, being intimidating and shouting ridiculous stuff, calling for people to be sacked. But it, Kathleen Stock's uh, case was the first real little expose of the cowardice within academia itself and the way in which a cowardly attitude to free speech and you know an inability to call out censorship when it's there among academic staff administration staff um became very apparent because it's one thing Kathleen Stock having to deal with a couple of posters up and on Sussex campus it's another thing not being able to have any solidarity among not only your own department which she didn't have but among you know uh, only latterly a message from the vice chancellor which uh, came when as he was leaving which was a very good message but still it, it wasn't enough and her union abandoned her as well mm. and most crucially UCU revealing itself to be what we've all known for a very long time UCU has not got any interest in defending academic um, for, you know, a- academic freedom or free speech on campus, but actually actively taking a position of siding with those who had been engaging in this kind of intimidating behaviour. I think that's why it's different because lots of, you know, people used to take the piss out of us and say, oh, freeze peach, you know, all you, you know, what you really just don't like is you don't like having consequences when you put on a, a negative speaker. And actually the Kathleen Stock uh, case really shows that it's the problem with censorship on campus runs far deeper and it's not just a handful of students, it's actually a cowardice within the whole ac- academy itself. Tom, the issue that this all hung around was gender or mm. transgender, essentially. Um, I mean, there are plenty of other gender critical feminists who found themselves in similar positions to Kathleen Stock. I mean, Joe Phoenix uh, yeah. resigned. She was hounded by her colleagues um, rather than students. At Open University. At the Open yeah. University, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, we seem to have gone from no platform for fascism that mm-hmm. we recognised several years ago to no platform for, pe- for feminists. I yeah. mean, how did we get there? I mean, it's, it's a vindication of the, that age-old argument for censorship that you can't keep it in its box, really, kind mm-hmm. of as, as soon as you um, concede that certain views need to be silenced, particularly under this rubric that they're hateful or harmful, because these are such slippery terms. Who decides what's harmful and hateful, you know? So th- this is almost a kind of natural consequence of all of that. I suppose there's always a bit of a danger that when we're talking about people who are being cancelled for airing views that the vast majority of people would share. So in Kathleen Stock's case, you know, she's not a kind of fire-breathing transphobe. She just happens to think that there are such things as men and women, biological mm. sex is real, certain rights flow from that. I think most people can 
agree with that without even necessarily getting into the trans issue necessarily. But at the same time, I think the acceptability, if you like, of the targets at the moment, Mm. it can be a bit of a distraction. It can get us away from the fundamental argument for free speech, but it does show you how far things have gone. I mean, another case that I go back to is the investigation of Neil Thin at um, Edinburgh University. So he's a senior lecturer there. Um, He had kind of found himself in the crosshairs because he had opposed the renaming of the David Hume Tower as part of a kind of decolonised campaign. Um, And when he was put under this investigation, he found himself targeted by kind of anti-racist groups on campus. It was for him effectively saying anti-racist things. So saying that these kind of woke, segregated spaces, you know, no white people allowed, this is about um, centering the oppressed groups and all the rest of it is just divisive and ugly and kind of racist. Um, Talking about how he wants, there was one thing that was flagged up on one of these campaigns about him talking about he wanted to live in a post-racial society and all these (laughs) kinds of things. And you just think if those people are being hauled over the coals, we're in a real problem. And I think the Kathleen Stott thing in particular and the nastiness of that, and as you were saying, the, the cowardice and the inability of people in a philosophy department to stick up for someone's right to um, to think and to write and to speak as they please. You start to wonder whether the university is just lost to this stuff. Mm. Um, and I'd always been thought that kind of prognosis may be a little bit premature, even up until quite recently. But at the same time, cases like that make you just realise that free speech and academic freedom are no no longer really the founding principles of these organisations. They were the founding principles, they're no longer the central principles of these organisations. It's now so much more focused on the kind of reproduction and policing of a particular ideology than it is about the pursuit of truth or free and open debate. And you start to wonder whether these institutions really can kind of reform themselves, if you like, at this point, or whether these places are kind of lost to that kind of ideology, at least for a while yet at this point. I mean, that raises an interesting conundrum because the government, the UK government, is obviously trying to introduce free speech back into universities with its with its free speech bill but at the same time we know the conservative government is part of the kind of clamping down on free speech online via the online safety bill um which will probably come into force next year and has also introduced the policing bill which will clamp down on noisy protests so do you think there is this kind of tension where you know whatever side of politics you're looking at it from there's a kind of free speech for me but not for thee mm. attitude yeah i that i know lots of colleagues and fellow travelers who've very deeply care about free speech, particularly on campus, and you know their commitment to um, arguing against censorship is unwavering. But and I know why people are so desperate for anything, and that's why there has been some celebration of this suggestion of a higher education bill that the government would bring in, basically mandates that say a university has to meet some level of free speech and not allow speakers to be banned. But you have to take it in the round, and you have to look at the fact that. You have a government that in all other areas is being, you know, from coronavirus to protest to online, as you say, Fraser, is being so, inc- not just even kind of like the usual sort of uh, safetyist approach, is being actively incredibly illiberal. And then to apply that to, you know, say this one place at university, they're giving some space. You actually have to look and say, this isn't where free speech comes from. Free speech has, and you've made this point actually in the, when you spoke in parliament um, a few years ago, that you cannot mandate it. It's not mm. a gift for elites to give. Mm. And it's, and most importantly, at university, it is not a policy for administration to 
enforce. It is the lifeblood, the underlying, the, the kind of unmentioned basis of what a university education or any kind of discussion should be about. I'm sort of, you get to a position where you're incredibly frustrated where you're saying, but I want to stop talking about free speech because that should just be a given. <laughs> it should just be there. And then instead we can talk about English literature, philosophy, physics, whatever mm-hmm. you're doing. And so this for kind of the, I think it tends to be a sort of superficial understanding of what the power and importance of free speech is that you just get a government to tick kind of have a tick box approach to it. I'm very, very sceptical of it. Well, I think there's, there was also a thing where what really came out in the wash of that higher education bill was how limited their understanding was of academic freedom and freedom of speech. Because I was a bit more sort of sanguine about these things, but, but still had the sense that it just wasn't really going to work for the reasons that you said. Um, but it was interesting because it, it, not just in terms of the kind of examples that are being cited, it was just kind of things that conservatives could kind of get on board of. You know, there's a bit of gender critical feminists which are used yeah. as a kind of nice sort of battering ram for these proposals, <laughs> if you like. A bit of a human shield. A bit of a human shield, you know, because who could, who could, um, who could disagree? But then there's also these questions about, you know, these kind of, uh, more sort of right leaning historians who want to talk about maybe there were some positive things about the empire or this, that, the third. Also, the Tories would often kind of get sucked into this slightly kind of self-victimising idea that just sort of young Tories on campus are just sort of mm. completely getting in the net, which is not to say that they're not, but, you know, you can kind of go too far down that road, yeah. shall we say. Um, and then, you know, you had a universities minister who found herself being asked, well, would you even allow something like Holocaust now? And then kind of saying yes, and then being browbeaten and having to retract and all the rest of it. There's just, there's a lot of confusion. And the confusion is perfectly summed up by these other pieces of legislation that you're talking about, which are some of the most authoritarian pieces of legislation that I can remember in quite some time. Obviously, the policing bill, we've talked a lot about it, is just this blank check to police protest off of the justification of a bunch of um, direct actions from Extinction Rebellion, Insulate Britain, which are fundamentally already illegal, or certainly things that you can deal with. You know, it's not a free speech issue to be able to glue yourself to a train. We know all that's not the case. Um, And then, of course, this online safety bill, which is coming down the pipe, which... um, it's hard to overstate how much that would change the game for freedom of speech online. It would effectively end it in the UK, as far as I can tell, for not only essentially incentivizing social media firms of a certain size to restrict or to regulate legal but harmful speech, which is a terrifying new kind of concept to sort of enter this particular discussion. But it's also regulating our kind of online speech in the way in a sense that you would kind of regulate television stations or yeah. something like this. It's using Ofcom, which would be empowered to kind of set guidance, and then it would enforce these rules um, via these social media companies. So it's almost like your speech is being regulated by a state regulator just via the proxy of a particular office at a social media company. This is really alarming stuff, um, and I think there's something that hasn't quite kind of reached the sort of mainstream of discussion yet, but it really should, because if this comes off and it's actually effective, and there's no... Uh, guarantees on that front. <laughs> it's very hard to legislate for the internet, but it's going to have a chilling effect, whatever kind of Frankenstein form it eventually emerges in, definitely. I don't know about you, but I never want to stop learning. There's always gaps in my knowledge that I feel like I need to fill and new subjects I want to explore. And that's why I love Wondrium. Their library of streamable content is truly incredible. Whether you want to dip into a subject or go deep into the details of it, Wondrium has something for you. Last week on the podcast, we talked about our leaders' catastrophic blunders in evacuating Afghanistan. It made me think that the people in charge really should have taken a bit more time to understand the Middle East and its history. I've been learning a huge amount about this by streaming the program The Middle East in the 20th Century, and you can stream it too on Wondrium. It's presented by the author, Eamon Gearan, who explains with incredible clarity the milestones and the crises that have made the Middle East so central to the modern world. 
He starts at the beginning of the century with the fall of the Ottoman Empire and takes you through the world wars and the Arab-Israel conflict. There's even a thought-provoking episode looking at whether democracy and Islam can work together. The program has really made me appreciate what's going on in the Middle East so much better. And it was so easy to watch and listen to. I turn it on at home to watch it on my computer, and then I pick it up where I left off on the Wondrium app on my phone while I walk to and from work. Wondrium really is the ideal learning companion. Wondrium's vast curated library makes lifelong learning fun. Their engaging videos are full of mind-blowing content covering every topic you've ever wondered about. You can dive into documentaries, travel logs, tutorials, and so much more. There's so much insight and knowledge to be gained. Why not start with the Middle East in the 20th century and then check out the thousands of other videos Wondrium has to offer? And we have an amazing offer to get you started, a free trial of unlimited access. To get this offer, sign up now through our special URL, wondrium.com slash spiked. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash spiked. Wondrium is my favorite streaming service. I get to learn about whatever I want, whenever I want. So join me today at wondrium.com slash spiked. I think it's fair to say that uh, 2021 is the year where the culture was kind of colonized everything. And probably this was nowhere clearer than in sports. So Euro 2020 in particular, we had the England players taking the knee before every match and getting booed a lot of the time. Um, Tom, I mean, what did you make of, first of all, the booing? And then second, the response to the booing, because a lot of people like to hold it up as, you know, this is who we are. This is an example of the kind of racist Mm -hmm. country we've become. And of course, the booing stuff has been going on since 2020, of course, um, because the knee taking has been going on since 2020. And I think really at the heart of it is this fundamental misunderstanding about what virtue signaling is about mm. what this new anti-racism is it's almost like a kind of like someone taking these almost like a rorschach test as to how you kind of see the world yeah. in a sense. because some people will just see it as a completely morally unimpeachable kind of expression of disagreement with racism which the vast majority of people in a football stadium or anywhere else can get on board with but there's this other layer to it now mm. some players might not be recognizing this when they engage in it but this new anti-racist politics as kind of symbolized by this gesture is deeply warped you know it kind of projects a level of racism in society which is just ridiculous it's very almost apocalyptic about the state of race relations whether it's in britain or the us or anyone else and also it has this inherent kind of hectoring quality to it Um, and i think the way in which that you saw fans being reprimanded being browbeaten by members of the kind of sporting and footballing establishment Mm. i think just really demonstrated that aspect to it which is that it's effectively again kind of bashing them over the head with a message that they disagree with under the auspices that because they're racist deep down whether they realize it or not and that's what people are on the whole responding to but i think you can see how you've got two sides almost talking past each other in that kind of response to that whole issue i guess and then after england lost in the final there were a number of allegedly racist tweets sent out i mean this was again held up as emblematic of what england fans are just like Um, What did you make of that, Ella? Well, it was very disappointing because the thing about a big sporting event and particularly something like the Euros or the World Cup is that people who aren't football fans, like Mm. myself, get invested in it. And there is a genuine, authentic sense of national excitement and people go and they, you know, they watch it and you root for your team. And, you know, people who never would describe themselves as English suddenly start wearing um, shirts. And I remember seeing around Dawson, there's big kind of papier-mâché 
sterling shirt being driven around and everyone cheering. It's just a really wonderful thing. And it's, and it's, you know, a sense of national solidarity. And then for that to have come and been ruined mm. by a hand, really it was a handful of tweets in the, in the grand scheme of things. You have such an outpouring of genuine national love for a team, a young team who did so well and young players who did so well. And then it's, it's not even like it's, if the tweets had just happened and then people had ignored it and said, well, that doesn't represent us. Never mind that. Then nothing would have, then it would have been fine. But because there's this desire to search mm. out the badness, even yeah. if it's in small quantities, there's this kind of, this, this knee jerk reaction to say, see, we told, we said, we told you you were awful. It reveals the very sort of middle class nature of, um, the culture wars. And it was fascinating to, and terrible to see that intersect with a working class sport like football, where the whole point of a football match is for, that it is kind of half carnivalesque. It's meant to be a, a free for all situation. I mean, for various reasons, it hasn't been for a long time, ticket prices and also regulations being brought in, yeah. but it still does have, you know, fans do have that sense of this is our zone. We do what we want here. Raw passion. Yeah. A raw kind of passion for the game. And then to, ha and most importantly for the sport, it's about what's happening with the players' feet, not what's going on when they're taking the knee knots, what's going on in their heads. And then to have this, I think sort of through the vehicle of Gareth Southgate, but I mean, that might be unfair, but through this sort of like middle class obsession with trying to police the politics of football mm. and saying that these young footballers, really young footballers like Saka, have to be some kind of role, political role model rather than just a great mm. sportsman. Um, sours the whole thing and I'm sure there's lots of football fans now who are just sick of it and don't want to be involved in it because once you step into that stadium you're no longer in this free space where you're enjoying the thing that you've paid hundreds of pounds to go to see but you've got the eyes of the world on you yeah. people are waiting to see if you're going to boo or hiss not because you thought that was a bad girl but because probably you're racist mm. and so it shows you the kind of the really kind of drippingly bourgeois nature of cancel culture and its censorious tendency to basically just crush any kind of authentic um, working class or otherwise kind of national sentiment. Mm. And not, not to get caught in the football, but it was just a rehabilitation so clearly of just that idea of football fans are scum. Yeah. That's basically, in politically correct terms, that's fundamentally what it was. You had this crazy moral panic after that. And also, again, going back to that misinformation point, remember the um, graffiti on the Marcus Rashford mural? Something which if you ask most people, most relatively informed people, what that was all about, they said, oh, it was daubed in like racist graffiti. The police have clarified it wasn't mm. racist. Um, in, you know, it was calling him shite or something and there was like a cock and balls on there or something. Yeah. And it was in blue, which implies a certain local rivalry <laughs> in Manchester, <laughs> um, which obviously could have some bearing on this as well. But at the same time, it's almost like not only does this anti-racist narrative require only one anecdote in order to burnish it. Um, it doesn't matter if everything else points in a good direction, but even stuff which turns out to kind of be bullshit doesn't dent that yeah. narrative whatsoever either. You know? <laughs> we should talk very briefly about the Olympics. It's quite easy to forget given the lack of spectacle this year, given mm. it was, most of it was coroned off, basically. I mean, there was many BLM moments at the Olympics, people taking the knee, but the key standout moment, I think, was uh, Simone Biles. Um, not just quitting, which is... Was, time athlete of the year, no? Exactly. Yeah. Time athlete of the year. I mean, you could understand why she quit, given her um, problem with the twisties, unable to um, balance herself, essentially. Mm -hmm. But the celebration of her quitting was quite something. I think that's a really important point is that when you look back now and try and jog your memory about what happened in the Olympics, the first thing you think about is the outpourings of support, not for a sporting success, but for a sporting failure. And the, you know, whether it's either, you know, Simone Biles at the Olympics or Naomi Osaka or all these, this kind of trend mm. for these young women to come out and display their 
weakness, which we all have weaknesses. And my God, Simone Bars has far less weaknesses than I do. <laughs> and, you know, absolutely no judgment there. But, but, you know, to, to kind of celebrate this thing that surely she herself must be feeling bad, but doesn't want to happen. She didn't, I'm surely she didn't want the twisties to happen. She wanted to get out there and do what she does best. And there being no recognition that this is, you know, you, the, the idea that you can be critical, you can say, oh, well, that's a shame and not be an arse about it, yeah, yeah. but just say, well, this is not what sport's about. Sport's about winning. So try again next year. And instead to have this sort of recalibration of sport is actually not being about a competition but being about this place where young people get to feel good about themselves makes it a very boring spectacle for us because as everyone knows you know the best ones are the most the most competitive ones people run the fastest jump the highest and do the weirdest things and if they're not doing that and if there's not the pressure to do that and if they're just like us human and frail well then what's the point because (laughs) we're not very interesting we watch them because they're oddballs you know the the excitement of the olympics as mick has written about mick hume on spike throughout the year is about human you know, sort of uh, ingenuity, but also just pushing things to the limit. Yeah. And that inevitably comes with the fact that if you push things to the limit, you might fail. And we all accept that. But there seems to be now a kind of complete pathologization of failure. Celebration of uh, failure. Mm. Um, I want to talk quickly about two key moments in the US culture wars, two court cases, essentially. Um, one of Carl Rittenhouse and his acquittal and one of the um, conviction of Jesse Smollett. Mm-hmm. Tom, I mean, these were two cases that really seemed to puncture the kind of woke social justice narrative around race, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, or at least kind of found themselves in the sort of crossfire of the culture yeah. in a weird sort of way. I mean, because the, the Rittenhouse thing is fascinating because you basically had a a trial that was, especially as it wore on kind of open and shut. I mean, people can go back and look at our conversation about it, read about it on Spike, but essentially um, a kid who in the midst of the kind of Black Lives Matter rights and melee shot three people killing two of them, all of whom being white. It's essentially this getting framed as a kind of white supremacist terror situation when it was mm. actually you know, ultimately in self-defence. Um, again, you, and all of the kind of pressure being levelled on the jury to basically deliver the correct decision, even though it was quite obvious what was happening. And it was quite obvious it had pretty, you know, very little to do with race fundamentally. But yeah. because the narrative had been set that this was effectively, this um, teenager was effectively a white supremacist terrorist who was only um, protecting buildings in a particular city because of the fact that he was, you know, wanted to go and shoot Black Lives Matter protesters effectively, that you saw this horrendous kind of outpouring and even the President of the United States expressing his concern mm. at the jury verdict. And you just feel that... Uh, the kind of top to bottom of American society, you have this desire to try and bend almost every institution, even something as important as the, as the law, to woke imperatives, to the woke narrative. And if it doesn't, there's outcry. Um, and that's something that's really, really, really alarming. I mean, the Smollett thing, obviously, it's, it's kind of been given a new lease on life by this um, trial recently. But I think there you just saw a perfect example of, again, of just how the narrative conquers everything. I mean, you had this um, alleged hate crime, which turned out to be an obvious hoax, which frankly, anyone was looking at, anyone who actually looked at the details could see things about it didn't add up from, you know, pretty early on before we found out that the two people attacked him allegedly in this racial and homophobic attack were not only two black guys, but two black guys who worked for him. (laughs) Um, The the swiftness with which people just kind of swallowed it. And And the way in which actually a lot of people, including Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, et cetera, who kind of tweeted their support, haven't even really readdressed the issue. I think, again, just talks about how the, the narrative conquers all at this point. Not quite the legal profession, it seems, which is good to good to see, but certainly journalism and certainly politics. And I think it's fair to say as well, 
this year has been the year that climate alarmism was put on steroids. I mean, we started hearing, you know, top level officials, prime ministers, figures in the UN starting to sound almost more alarmist than Greta Thunberg. I mean, the, one of the key moments, moments of the year was the release of the IPCC report. Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the UN, saying this is code red for humanity. I mean, Tom, it really feels like they have raised the stakes a lot on the climate issue this year. Oh, completely. And they've raised the stakes, which has, but with nothing to do with the evidence. I mean, that <laughs> Guterres quote, you know, there's nothing in the report, the IPCC report, which he was referring to, which would lead you to that conclusion. But nevertheless, it feels like it's quite clear that there's political um, capital or there's a, there's a sense of mission that all of these different institutions, whether they be national governments or the UN or whatever, see in this particular issue. Um, because the way, the means through which, the way in which they've wrapped their arms around it and the way in which they've embraced such a kind of extreme form of it, as you talk about, has been really, really striking. I mean, it, this does feel like the year when officially, if not, you know, originally, that climate alarmism and environmentalism has become like the ruling class ideology. It's yeah. so central to what not just the political elite, but also the capitalist class, even the old aristocracy in the form of, you know, Prince Charles and everyone else showing up at COP to give their lectures alongside the Jeff Bezos's and the Boris Johnson's, etc. It, it cuts through all of those different kind of spheres of power. Um, and it's really, really striking that you kind of see that sort of coalescence. And also, at the same time, the hypocrisy, yeah. which is quite interesting as well. You know, there obviously there's been a lot of chatter about the 400 private jets that were arriving in Glasgow um, Joe Biden is 85 car motorcade of gas guzzlers driving around Rome and then to Glasgow and all the rest of it. And I think you see in that is the fact that there's a reason that this kind of politics certainly appeals to them or certainly doesn't put them off in the same way it would someone who's just trying to, you know, live a nice life for themselves, uh, save up enough to go on holiday each year, get the kids to school in a cheap and um, easy fashion and all the rest of it is because of the fact that not only does it lend them a lot of this um, status, but also it doesn't really require much of them. Yeah. at the end of the day. And I think that's something which became really clear in all of those kind of hypocritical kind of cell phone <laughs> stories that we saw around COP. Um, so you just really see that this is an ideology that has been embraced by the elite and you can see why it has been embraced by them, if you see what I mean. And as well as the kind of globetrotting, jet-setting elite, we had um, still a posh bunch, but not quite as elite. We had the kind of environmental grassroots going a bit mad as well. I mean, this was the year of insulate Britain, a posh bunch that are retired and don't have too much influence, loads of vicars and things like that. They usually have like one or two working class people who they put out. Yeah, someone with an <laughs> accent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The weird thing about Insulate Britain is that you just look back and you think there was this much disruption and this much chaos caused by a group who wanted more insulation. It's like, you know, like that the, they want to go, there's like a few more screws in the house. It's like mm. so banal and so, <laughs> so not kind of code red. It's not even like stop eating meat. Do it. It's just, it's so kind of functional in a weird way that I think reveals something about the hysteria of, of climate activism at the moment where you have, you know, the fact that we in the last uh, month or so, it's hard to keep track of time, haven't really had a national conversation about climate change and politics. You know, you have politicians going from, okay, insulate Britain and Extinction Rebellion are mad, but the world is ending and we yeah. are all going to die unless we get to 1.8, 2.4, whatever the hell the percentages of degrees. And then the next week it's like, oh, forget it, never policy paper, you know, now we're talking about coronavirus or something. And it reveals the shallowness of their actual belief in 
uh, you know, if you really did think that the world was going to end unless everybody in Britain insulated their houses, you would have taken this seriously. You would have kept going. You would never have shut up about it. So the kind of cynical superficiality of it is one thing. But it's also the case that it has had an effect because what's, you know, yes, uh, people like Extinction Rebellion going up in sort of papier-mâché suits and dressing <laughs> up in Trafalgar Square is just a silly thing that's had you know, people say, well, it's just how they protest. It doesn't really mean too much, but it has been internalized by the political elite. It has come to inform, um, you know, new policies around uh, boilers and the banning Mm. of boilers or heat pumps. It's come to inform policies around um, how London's infrastructure runs, around how, where you can drive, what you can drive, all these small things that just go under the radar that make a such bigger difference than a couple of people stopping people on the M25. What we're going to see in the years to come is the normalization of really very extreme policy that has a real change in people's lives, but just put a kind of glossed over with this green sheen of, well, it's just about us being nice to the planet. Because I think, you know, in the new year, we do well to stop focusing on the kind of mad people who go out on the street and cause a scene and actually look at what's happening behind the doors of Westminster, yeah. where the fine print of the detail of environmental policy could mean some very real and significant and negative changes for us in the new year. Well, yeah, the net zero was given a bit more flesh mm. this year. I mean, isn't it just quite depressing, Tom, in the, in the sense that it almost just defines the limits of what is politically acceptable almost for the next 20, 30 years or so? Yeah, and, and it's what it kind of sets out is something which is just so miserable. You know, it's been pretty well summed up is that they want people to be colder and poorer effectively, whether it's fry these heat pump policies or whether it's by any of these things, which are effectively trying to price them out of um, cheap and reliable forms of transport, energy, all the rest of it. It's a really grim vision. And you kind of feel like this is what you're investing all of your political capital in this is what Boris Johnson kind of hopes will be part of his legacy is just to rein in, people's everyday lives in a very kind of minute fashion as, as you're talking about Ella but also ultimately the kind of prospects for humanity in general um, what is possible and just the class element of it as well has become so strikingly clear this year it cuts through absolutely everything whether it's these posh insulate Britain people you know getting dragged out of the road by um, uh, white van guys trying to get to work or whether it's all of the kind of theatrics at COP or whether it's something like net zero which the government knows because it's been reported on its own treasury assessments point to first of all that this is going to be incredibly expensive i mean like one trillion seems to be the um the lower end of the estimates as to how much this is going to cost but also that it will be borne disproportionately by poor and working class people Mm. as was always going to be obvious so this kind of climate warfare is class warfare by other means that's become strikingly clear this year i think so the time we're recording this the coronavirus has come back with a bit of a vengeance i think Mm. it's fair to say perhaps less virulently but it's still dominating the the news headlines i mean let's cast our minds back to january this year we're we're in full-on lockdown but there's some hope in the form of the vaccine that was the thing that was going to get us out of it i mean that was promising at the time wasn't it It was very exciting. And, you know, on a kind of fundamental practical level of this will be the thing that will allow us to get back out again. But there was also a huge amount of excitement about the fact that it was a new vaccine that it had been come up with so quickly that the, you know, the scientists rightly were getting loads of plaudits. And there was, you know, you felt, you kind of dare say it because you end up sounding like a little Englander, but you felt proud to be you know, part of this country that had led the way in terms globally in terms of the vaccine. And there was a lot of, you know, righteous backslapping about it. And 
Fast forward 11 months and all of that positive aspect of the vaccine, all of the kind of the genuine sense of social solidarity around it has been squandered by a government and that kind of national goodwill has been squandered by a government that has refused to play on the positive strengths that it has had in relation to scientific innovation. And now we're back in the situation in which Our answer is the vaccine, is the booster, and that is the thing to go down. And yet the government's relied on coercive measures, whether Mm. it be around vaccine passports, um, whether it be around, uh, you know, basically crucifying the the hospitality industry again, as if it hasn't had a bad enough two years, um, bringing in suggestions now of, you know, not quite criminalising Christmas parties, but selling everyone to go home and have a miserable time. And you just think, why? It didn't, it's, it's, you kind of want to cry. Did you think it didn't have to be like this? Yeah. Boris Johnson, you could have been the hero in this because you led the government that had this success with the vaccine, but you've just pissed it up the wall. And the people who are going to suffer is, uh, not people in parliament who have, we've seen recently have been having a good time, even when it was back in <laughs> a real, you know, serious situation of Christmas last year. But it's going to be those people who, you know, their grandparents now cancel on them, yeah. who now aren't, you know, are going to say, well, actually, I won't go to that party and won't see their friend that they haven't seen all year. And all of that is just, it's just the human misery of it is what gets understated. Tom, uh, let's briefly talk a bit about the vaccine race that mm. Ella has alluded to. I mean, if if it's not too triumphalist to say this, it did feel like a bit of a vindication for, <laughs> for Brexit a little bit, an yeah. unexpected and early one. Mm. Um can you talk a bit about that episode? Because I feel like we're in danger of forgetting it. It was so mad and deranged. It was so mad and deranged. And as you say, it was. It felt like a vindication because not only um, was there this kind of general sense um, across the political establishment that, you know, this was the time for technocracy to shine, if you like. Yeah. This is built for something like the European Union. They're going to get all these vaccines. They're going to procure them. They're going to roll them out continent-wide. And, you know, Plague Island is going to be left, <laughs> you know, reeling as a result of this. And, of course, none of that happened um, because of the fact that I think, you know, if you're in a time of emergency, the, the way in which a nation, um, if it's got a good head on its shoulders, can just work in a much more nimble fashion, doesn't have to go through these ridiculous bureaucratic measures. I mean, one of the things that really slowed down the European vaccine procurement programs, they were still going after value for money yeah. at yeah. one point. You think that's the last thing you should be worrying about yeah. right now. You know, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, fair comments um, and criticisms of the government and how much cash they were splashing in in what directions recently. But still, you know, you have to work with a level of urgency. Um, so there was that kind of indication, obviously, in terms of how quickly we managed to get it, approve it, roll it out. But the behaviour of the EU establishment and the European Commission and Ursula von der Leyen and various others effectively trying to spread again there's that word again misinformation about the astrazeneca vaccine in particular trying to suggest that in approving vaccines the uk's um regulator had act hastily effectively not only just engaging in the most ridiculous kind of fear-mongering and low politics but actively inflaming their own problems across mm. europe with vaccine hes- hesitancy in the process i thought was absolutely shameful and it was just such a stark contrast to this idea that this cool-headed um, technocratic institution that only had the people of Europe's best intentions at heart was acting in the most nakedly political fashion, in the most damning, in the most damaging fashion possible, at a point of real global crisis. And I think, if anything, could sum up how the European Union is fundamentally only interested in its own survival rather than absolutely anything else. I think that was a pretty good example of it. Absolutely. And if we think about the summer, we did have 
a few months of freedom. <laughs> you know, even even some of the more mundane rules around masks were were gone, at least in England. In any case, mm. um, but there perhaps there was a hint that this wasn't all over when Freedom Day was delayed by a month. We saw that even after the vaccine rollout, even after the vulnerable had been jabbed, there was still a reluctance to let the restrictions go, wasn't there? Yeah, because that it's become a virtue now to say we don't take anything off the table. Mm. That's become the government's way of signaling that they are good and righteous and they're doing the right thing is by saying, you know, uh, you know, we reserve the right to bring any kind of restrictions as and when are necessary. Now, obviously you don't want to be stupid. You want to say, of course, if something happens, you need to be able to have all options to respond to it. And I don't think I'd be very comfortable with bringing in a kind of, you know, ban lockdown forevermore response to it. You don't, you know, you don't meet a liberalism with more liberalism. But the that kind of virtue signaling from the government has become basically its fallback in which you, you know, it's it's unsurprising. And I, I sort of, I'm sort of a bit disappointed with people that haven't seen this coming, that when you have a prime minister who, you know, doesn't even at the start of the year want to defend the idea of not just Freedom Day, but um, freedom in general, doesn't want to, has lost all its libertarian sentimentality, as superficial as it was originally, and has uh, every single minister and the way that they talk about this from the start of the year to today has always had in the background of any of their comments don't go full hog. Don't yeah. enjoy your freedom. Don't don't really believe that this is over because it isn't. Now, obviously, we're in a situation in which, you know, we're on Plague Island and also we're recording from Plague Island capital where <laughs> Omicron is, you know, very definitely here and is very definitely spreading like wildfire. But there is uh, the knee-jerk reaction towards things like that were promised that would never come in, like vaccine passports. You know, Nadim Zahawi promising that on and saying you can hold me to it on Twitter. Okay, Twitter's a bit superficial, but you know, in public that this will never happen. And that there's just being taught those promises being tossed out the window. The promise around not being becoming a society that mandates masks, that that is a papers please um society, gone out the window. And uh, you know, you have many people today saying I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lockdown in January next year. Yeah. You know, at what point do we even sort of defend the idea that we're living in a liberal society anymore? I think, as Brendan O'Neill has said several times on Spike, we aren't. You know, the test of a liberal society is whether or not you believe in freedom. And it's very clear that our leaders don't. The question is, does the public, and I think this Christmas will be a bit of a test, those of us who are willing to make sensible decisions and, and maintain that sentiment of freedom will. And I think those, unfortunately, who've given into a kind of a provoked fear within the government won't. And it's about how we build back that national solidarity around socialising with each other in a new year, even when the threat of Omicron is gone and when we all get boosted, which I'm going to do on the weekend. It's about actually carrying on this sense of freedom as an authentic thing, not as a mandated thing from government. Yeah, Tom, I mean, if the cautious but irreversible roadmap can mm. be recklessly reversed, <laughs> then do we not have this threat always hanging over us? Can mm. we be free if the option is always there that we can be locked down again? I mean, that's the, the huge worry, isn't it? Because, you know, liberal societies have always had that kind of principle, which is like, obviously people should be free, but there are certain points, there are certain points of emergency where the conditions are such, the threat is such 
that um, liberties need to be curtailed. But the word there is emergency, right? Mm. This is really important. What we're talking about now is things is liberties being curtailed as a precaution. Yeah. You see that particularly with the Omicron variant, which again is seeming to be a, a problem insofar as how quickly it's it's spreading. But still, you can say very little about it categorically in relation to how big of a problem it's going to be for hospitals. Um, the question of how mild it is, it does seem to be more mild from what we're seeing from South Africa, but a lot of people are quite rightly saying we need to wait and see. But this is this is the point, whereas you, know, you can see a justification for emergency measures being made at different points in this pandemic. Now is not one of them. And if that continues to be the case, you have to ask the question, which is that, is this just part of the general sort of toolkit of government now mm. um, and how long is this going to last i mean you, you'd like to think that hopefully this sort of thing will burn itself out in a few months this sort of way of dealing with this once it feels like the you know the government is only really going to kind of declare this semi over about six months after it probably is over if you see what i mean that's the only way that they can probably politically deal with it but at the same time how long is that going to take but also what legacy will that have for other threats in the future it's really alarming how much just that kind of authoritarian mode of governing has been legitimized and how undermined the idea of just letting us get on with it has been as well. Mm. The way in which you have um, this, this whole period has just kind of fed a sense of mutual suspicion between people, the sense that people, that your neighbors can't be trusted to follow the rules. They need these rules to be brought in. All of that has just been really kind of burned into us, I think, over the course of this. So as, as you were saying, there's the kind of question about the government, but there's also that question about society in general, because if the government's kind of lost its sense of freedom, then it's for society to reassert that. <laughs> 